Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and death that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. For most criminals, their arrest is the end of the line. They sit in a prison cell with all of their most daring days behind them. But for Audrey Marie Hilly, her arrest was only the beginning. What followed was a three-year whirlwind that sounds like a soap opera. There are aliases, disguises, a marriage, a faked death, and even an invented twin sister. The authorities eventually untangled Marie's mess and brought her in. But even then, the sordid affair wasn't over. Because Marie Hilly was the greatest escape artist Alabama had ever seen. And her story has an ending you won't see coming. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. Last week, we met Marie Hilly, a small-town woman who murdered her husband for his life insurance policy. Four years later, she struck again. But before the poison could kill her daughter, Marie was caught for a different crime, fraud. This week, we'll follow the wild aftermath of Marie's arrest. While out on bail, she ran away and started a new life. And when the police eventually found her, she escaped again. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time. Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 
It was September of 1979, and 46-year-old Marie Hilly was sitting in a jail cell in Anniston, Alabama. She'd been arrested for writing a couple of bad checks, but she wasn't worried. She prided herself on her good reputation and figured that would be enough to get her off the hook. Besides, it wasn't as though the police knew about her real crimes, like murdering her husband, Frank, four years earlier. Marie was pretty confident she'd get away with it all. She just had to talk her way out of the fraud charges first. Then she could get back to the business of killing her daughter for an insurance payout. But Marie had a problem she hadn't accounted for. The doctors may not have figured out what was wrong with Carol, but her family had. After being tipped off about the possibility of poison, the physicians took a closer look. Sure enough, the signs were there. Carol had white lines across her nails, a symptom known as Aldrich Mies. It was subtle, easy to miss, but once they knew what to look for, it was clear as day. There was too much arsenic in her system. When Carol learned the truth that she'd been poisoned, she felt a sense of relief. She'd spent months feeling like she was crazy, Finally, she knew she wasn't. But then the reality set in. She was sick and her mother was behind it all. That's when all eyes turned to Marie. Marie's son, 26-year-old Mike, called her in jail. Despite everything she'd done, he still felt a sense of loyalty to his mom and he wanted to give her a chance to explain herself. And as far as we can tell, she didn't disappoint. She spun a web of lies, feigning innocence and offering up one excuse after another. It seemed like she truly believed her own lies. Before we continue with Marie's psychology, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. It's possible Marie was experiencing the process of self-deception. According to researcher Anthony Greenwald, that's when a person appears both to know and not know one and the same thing. The idea that someone can hold two conflicting beliefs at once might seem like a stretch. That's because we assume individuals are consistent and logical in their thinking. But Greenwald says that's not always true. Sometimes a person's knowledge can be scattered and full of paradoxes. In Marie's case, there was a part of her that knew she'd poisoned Carol. It's possible that she coped with that knowledge by existing in a state of denial. She'd done something truly terrible, and she couldn't come to terms with her own actions. So when Detective Gary Carroll finally questioned her on October 2nd, she stuck to her story. She adamantly denied poisoning her daughter as well as her husband. But Marie made a mistake. For some reason, she admitted to giving Carol two injections in the hospital. The detective seized on that detail. The shots had happened. Now all he had to do was prove that she'd filled those syringes with arsenic. The proof came the next day. Nearly three weeks after Carol arrived at the University of Alabama hospital, test results confirmed it. She'd been ingesting poison for the last four to eight months. Hearing this, Mike called the coroner's office and asked them to take a second look at his father's cause of death. So investigators visited the city jail and asked Marie to sign off. 
They didn't need Marie's permission to exhume Frank's body, but Detective Carroll wanted to see her reaction. To his surprise, Marie said yes without hesitation. It's possible she assumed that the arsenic had long since passed out of her ex-husband's body. Unfortunately for Marie, the evidence was piling up. Three days later, Frank's sister found a suspicious vial amongst Marie's things. A quick test showed it had once held arsenic. Within the week, Marie's fate was decided. On October 9th, another charge came down. 46-year-old Marie was charged with the attempted murder of her daughter. Marie was in disbelief. A few bad checks was one thing, but murder was a whole other ballgame. She couldn't come back from that. The image she'd worked so hard for would be ruined. Fortunately for Marie, she was at least able to parlay her reputation and charm into getting bail. Despite the accusations lobbed against her, there were still some people who believed she was a good person. That narrative took a hit soon enough, though. Marie's story eventually hit the newsstands, and the media wanted their pound of flesh. Frank's family was also harassing and threatening her. Concerned for her safety, Marie's lawyer, Wilford Lane, checked her into a hotel room on Wednesday, November 14th. He gave her an alias and hoped that would cover their tracks. Then he told Marie to sit tight. He'd be back on Sunday to go over her defense. But as Sunday approached, Marie was antsy. She couldn't wait around and trust her lawyer to get the charges dropped. If things didn't go her way in court, she was as good as dead. Her only chance at freedom was to run. So Marie went to work. She ransacked the room, haphazardly throwing her clothes and messing up the sheets. Then she took a step back and surveyed the scene. She wanted it to look like a kidnapping, but something was missing. After a moment of hemming and hawing, Marie knew just what to do. She grabbed a piece of paper and pen and scribbled a note. It was short and ominous. Lane, you led me straight to her. You will hear from me. Marie left the note on the table, then fled into the night. As promised, Lane returned to the motel on Sunday. He knocked on Marie's door, but there was no answer. Worried, he called the cops. The police arrived and broke down the door, but Marie was nowhere to be found. At first glance, it did look like a kidnapping. The authorities found Marie's note and turned to Lane, wondering what he knew. He told them about her being harassed, which meant that it could have come from any number of people. But though a kidnapping seemed possible, detectives started to suspect that the scene was staged and Marie's note was the giveaway. When they compared it to another letter they had on file, it was clearly a match with her handwriting. She had played them all. But Marie wasn't there to see the look on their faces. She was already miles away, gathering supplies. After disappearing from the motel, she trekked back towards Aniston. We don't know whether she hitchhiked or took public transportation, but by that Sunday, she'd somehow traveled over 60 miles to her aunt's house. Once there, she staked out the property, waiting for it to be empty. 
After breaking a window, Marie hurried inside and began stuffing some clothes into a duffel bag. When she had what she needed, Marie penned another note. This one read, do not call police. We will burn you out if you do. We found what we wanted and will not bother you again. Marie left the message for her aunt. Then she stole her car and drove off. She made it all the way to Georgia before stopping in a small town, the type of place where people were always willing to help someone in need, and Marie figured she could take advantage of this generosity. She ditched the car and marched straight toward the police headquarters. She told the chief of police how she'd fallen asleep on a bus, only to wake up and find that the woman sitting next to her had stolen everything, her purse, her money, even her watch. She had nothing left. When the chief asked about family she could call, Marie said they were all dead or estranged. It was the one part of her story that wasn't a lie. Marie smiled at all the right times, batted eyelashes, and generally tried to look helpless. It worked perfectly. It wasn't often the chief got a beautiful out-of-towner in his office. He took pity and booked her a room at the local motel for the night. But that wasn't all. The next day, he went around town asking for donations, and the locals were more than willing to pitch in. With the money, Marie bought a bus ticket to Savannah and left before anyone could ask questions. Meanwhile, the Anniston Police Department was chasing its tail. By the time they found the getaway car in Georgia, Marie was long gone. However, there was a silver lining. Now that Marie had crossed state lines, federal agents got involved. When FBI agent Wayne Manis joined the case, one of his first actions was to request a psychological profile. The FBI's Behavioral Sciences Unit at Quantico guessed that Marie would want to find a new man and a well-paying secretarial job quickly. The profile also theorized that Marie was someone who could change her personality on a whim. And if that was the case, then investigators were chasing someone they didn't understand. Knowing that, they started to realize just how hard it was going to be to find Marie Hilly. Up next, Marie adopts a whole new life in Florida. Pinocchio. Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. 
Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch. Because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Now back to the story. In October of 1979, 46-year-old Marie Hilly made a run for it. Authorities tracked her all the way to Georgia, but there the trail went cold. With Marie gone, the investigation became two-pronged. First, the police had to build a case against her. Second, they had to actually find her. Things were going much better on the initial front. By early January 1980, the test results for Marie's husband, Frank Hilly, came back. He'd been killed by arsenic. Now, Marie was officially wanted for murder. But no one had any idea where she was. In fact, all we know is that she eventually made her way south to Florida. She resurfaced in Fort Lauderdale in February, but she was no longer Marie Hilly. Now she went by the name Robbie Hannon. A quick note, Marie used multiple aliases moving forward, but to save confusion, I'll stick with Marie. One night, Marie went to a cocktail party in Palm Beach. She was dressed to the nines with her hair perfectly done, but she wasn't there to let loose. She was there to find a meal ticket. Marie moved around the room, evaluating potential marks. Finally, her eyes fell on a quiet, unassuming man. He wasn't very attractive, nor did he look like he had any friends around. Perfect. She made a beeline for him and introduced herself as Robbie. As the night went on, Marie got more information about the gentleman. His name was John Homan, and he was a 33-year-old boat builder with a tragic past. Both his parents had died when he was still relatively young, and he'd already had one failed marriage. All he wanted now was to settle down with a nice woman and start fresh. John also liked to help people. He might have even had a bit of a savior complex. Also known as white knight syndrome, this occurs when a person feels a constant need to save other people. It can give them a sense of control and purpose, like for John, who had practically raised his siblings. But now they were all grown up, he might have felt aimless. According to therapist Cynthia Catchings, this type of behavior can be problematic in romantic relationships, especially if the person becomes more enamored with fixing the other person than loving them for who they are. When that happens, the fixer can become so obsessive in their goal that they don't give the other person a chance to make their own decisions. For Marie, someone like John was exactly what she wanted and she knew just the type of person who'd win his affections. So over the course of the night, she became that woman. 
Marie was what social psychologist Mark Snyder calls a social chameleon. That's his term for people who are always trying to be the right person in the right place at the right time. They assess the situation and adjust their personality to achieve whatever outcome they want. Marie settled in next to John and spun a sympathetic tale. Lying through her teeth, she said she was 33 as well and revealed she was battling a rare blood disease. She'd moved from Texas to Florida for a change of scenery, but couldn't find a job. With no other options, she turned to sex work. That night at the cocktail party was her first attempt, in fact, but she confessed her heart wasn't in it. John bought the story hook, line, and sinker. The poor guy was instantly smitten, and the two started dating. And as things got more serious, Marie embellished her fake backstory. She told John that she'd lived a privileged life back in Texas until her husband and two kids died in a car accident. After that, she'd had a breakdown and was checked into a facility. Until she could prove she was in a good mental state, her inheritance was all tied up. Marie claimed the money didn't matter to her, though. She'd collect it when the time was right. There was no point dwelling on the past. This was all music to John's ears. Marie, or Robbie as he knew her, wanted exactly the same things he did. It was like she was made for him. Of course, that's because Marie had planned it that way. Soon after they met, John asked Marie to move in with him. About a year later, in 1981, the couple decided to move states. It was likely Marie's suggestion. She knew she couldn't stay in any one place for too long. They considered their options before settling on the small town of Marlowe, New Hampshire. There, Marie got a job as a customer service clerk, while John found work as a machinist. Every day, Marie and John carpooled to work together, or rather, John drove Marie. She didn't have a license after all, and she showed no interest in getting one. That might have been a red flag to some people, but not John. He never asked questions. He just figured she was still scarred from her family's car accident. In reality, Marie didn't want to register with the DMV. It was too risky. After all, Robbie Hannon didn't actually exist. But a lack of ID didn't derail everything. That spring, 34-year-old John made 47-year-old Marie his wife. The ceremony was an intimate affair in Florida, back where they'd met. When it came time to fill out the marriage certificate, Marie used a fake social security number. All in all, things went off without a hitch, but unbeknownst to John, the wedding had spooked Marie and she started planning her escape again. If we're to believe Marie's version of the story, the problem was that she loved John too much. She realized that being with her husband might implicate him in her crimes, and she didn't want to drag him down, so it was best to disappear. Then again, maybe Marie just felt trapped and needed to get out before she suffocated. Either way, it was time to go. But how? In her mind, the easiest way to start over was to kill off her alter ego. So Marie began dropping hints that her blood disease was coming back. She complained of symptoms and gradually pretended they were getting worse. 
Then she turned up the intensity. She made a point of looking seriously ill at work, wanting her colleagues to see her downturn too. Once she'd convinced everyone that she was deathly sick, she quit her job and said she had to go back to Texas for treatment. Before she left, she penned another letter. This time, it was addressed to herself, or rather to her fake persona, Robbie. She signed the note, Terry Martin, Robbie's supposed twin sister. She wanted to leave proof that Terry existed, something to leave behind just in case. Afterwards, Marie carefully ripped the letter up in a way that could easily be put back together. She wanted to make sure that John read it after she was gone. With all the pieces set, 49-year-old Marie left for Texas in September of 1982. She stayed there for three days before returning to Florida to transform herself. She dyed her brunette hair blonde, went on a diet and lost about 20 pounds, and started going by her new alias, Terry. After two months, Marie decided it was time to put an end to Robbie once and for all. On November 10th, she called John and, posing as Terry, told him that Robbie had died. He shouldn't come to Texas, though, because she'd already donated the body to the Medical Research Institute of Texas. That should have been the end of that. Robbie was dead, Marie was free, and yet there was a pull that made her want to go back to New Hampshire. As far as we can tell, she couldn't bring herself to leave John. It seemed she truly loved him. So she told John that Robbie's final wish had been for her twin sister to help him grieve. He liked the sound of that and invited her to stay with him. On November 11th, Marie got off the plane in New Hampshire. Only now, she was the blonder, thinner Terry Martin. She looked strikingly like Robbie, but that made sense to John. They were twins after all. Soon after that, Marie and John placed an obituary for Robbie Holman in the local paper. It stated that she had been 37 years old, over 10 years younger than Marie actually was. It also said that Robbie's body had been donated for scientific research and that she was survived by her husband, John, and her sister, Terry. Nearly all of the details were false, but Marie didn't think anyone would bother to check it. Satisfied with the work, she went home with John. At first, John gave her the bed and he slept on the couch. But within a few weeks, he told a friend that they were both staying in his bedroom. The implication was clear. The two had started a sexual relationship. That sent Marlowe's small-town rumor mill into overdrive, because not everyone bought Marie's story as easily as John. Soon enough, there was a whole faction who thought that Terry and Robbie were the same person. Before the year was up, local detective Bob Hardy caught wind of the gossip. He'd never met Terry or Robbie, but the story piqued his interest. That's likely because none of it made any sense. Why would a woman fake her own death and then come back to town as her own twin? Surely she knew it would raise a level of unnecessary suspicion. Hardy eventually came up with his own theory. He thought Marie might be a fugitive bank robber by the name of Carol Manning. And if she was, he was about to have the crime of his career on his hands. 
Little did he know, the story was even bigger than he'd ever imagined. Up next, authorities close in on Marie. Now back to the story. In the winter of 1982, 49-year-old Marie Hilly adopted a second new persona. After faking Robbie Homan's death, Marie returned as Robbie's twin sister, Terry Martin. And while 35-year-old John Homan believed the story, not everyone in Marlowe, New Hampshire did. Detective Bob Hardy believed that he had a fugitive on his hands. Unfortunately, he'd never met either of Marie's fake personas, so he needed someone to point her out. Claudia Brooks had been friends with Robbie before she died and agreed to help. One morning, the two met at a local diner Terry was known to frequent. At some point, Marie arrived, and Claudia signaled to Hardy, that's her. But when the detective slyly turned and took a good look at the blonde woman, he was disappointed. She wasn't a match for the bank robber, Carol Manning. But if she wasn't Manning, who was she? Hardy was determined to find out. So he started by taking a look at Robbie's obituary. He discovered what others had already guessed. Nothing in it was true. The Medical Research Institute of Texas, where Robbie's body had supposedly been donated for study, didn't exist, nor did the church that eulogized her death. With little else to go on, Hardy enlisted the help of Detective Barry Hunter. Together, they decided that they needed to question this mysterious woman themselves. In January 1983, Detective Hunter, along with a few more agents, poured out of a sedan and intercepted Marie as she was leaving work. They flashed their badges and asked if she'd be willing to talk to them. Marie agreed, but she was on her guard. Though she wasn't being arrested, she had a sinking feeling in her stomach that her past had finally caught up to her. Back at the station, Hunter braced himself for a difficult interrogation. But as soon as he started to ask about the Robbie Terry mystery, Marie confessed, at least partially. It seems she was tired of running and knew the jig was up. She told them her real name was Audrey Marie Hilly and admitted that she was wanted for fraudulent checks. Hunter was at a loss. That wasn't what he was expecting to hear at all. To confirm her story, he called up the Anniston police station. In Alabama, investigators couldn't believe their ears. They told Hunter that there'd been a massive manhunt for Marie, but it wasn't because of checks. She was wanted for murder. Hunter blinked. Now that was interesting. The woman he'd interviewed was so put together, so demure. She didn't strike him as a killer, but he trusted his colleagues in Alabama. Armed with this knowledge, Hunter went back into the interrogation room and asked Marie a few more questions. Interestingly, she was the one who brought up the poisoning charges. She acted annoyed by the accusation and insisted she was innocent. At some point, Hunter redirected the conversation. He wanted to know how much her husband, John, knew about her past. Marie was adamant that he knew nothing and begged Hunter to keep him out of it. Well, Hunter wasn't one to take orders from a suspect. He called John down to the station and told him everything. And while John appeared genuinely surprised, 
it seems he wasn't phased by fake aliases or even the murder charge. He just wanted to see Marie. When the pair were allowed to reunite, she swore to him that she hadn't murdered anyone. Like always, he believed her. He promised to stick with her no matter what. After that, Marie was promptly sent back to Aniston. True to his word, John followed close behind. He was going to get her the best defense they could afford. Meanwhile, Marie whiled away her days in a prison cell awaiting trial. During this time, there are accounts of Marie behaving strangely. Her cellmate Priscilla Lang claimed that Marie acted like two different people. Sometimes she was talkative and outgoing, other times she was cold and distant. Lang also said that Marie confessed to her crimes. She had murdered Frank and tried to do the same to her daughter, Carol. Needless to say, prosecutors seized on this information to build their case. What's more, they figured Marie's defense team would plead insanity, so they preempted that move by calling for a psych exam. Despite her erratic behavior, Marie was found perfectly competent to stand trial. And by the summer of 1983, it was time to go to court. Perhaps the hardest parts for Marie were when her own children testified against her. She tried to make eye contact, even tried to talk to them, but both 30-year-old Mike and 23-year-old Carol barely looked at her. Aside from that family drama, the trial was largely uneventful. The case against Marie was pretty much open and shut. On June 8th, she was convicted of murdering Frank Hilly and received a life sentence. She was also found guilty of attempting to murder her daughter and got an additional 20 years for that. The next day, 50-year-old Marie was sent to Tutwiler Prison for Women in Alabama. Despite her long sentence, she was going to be eligible for parole in 1990, seven years away. All she had to do was stay on her best behavior. Even knowing this, when Marie first arrived at prison, she was in escape mode and came up with several plans to break out of her cell. But eventually, she realized she was fighting a losing battle and started playing by the rules. Marie's transformation wasn't unusual. According to social psychologist Craig Haney, when individuals first arrive in prison, they undergo a process of institutionalization. They learn to give up their autonomy and accept the new rules of their surroundings. This can be a painful adjustment, but a necessary one. If people don't properly assimilate, there can be long-term psychological effects, such as a diminished sense of self-worth or social withdrawal. Fortunately for Marie, she was a quick study and fell in line. But giving up her independence had some unexpected rewards. Within a year, she was put on minimum security status, which meant she could participate in supervised furloughs. Basically, she could leave prison for short excursions. On the first of these trips, she and eight other inmates went to lunch in Montgomery with the assistant warden. Marie breathed in the fresh air, and the feeling of freedom overwhelmed her. Suddenly, she knew she'd do whatever it took to get that back. When she returned to Tutwiler, Marie wrote a letter to Warden Jean Hare. It read, 
I have a lot to gain by handling this privilege the right way and everything to lose if I don't. So you have no cause to worry about my letting you down. The warden bought Marie's words. After all, she wasn't far away from parole. If she followed the rules, she'd be free in only a couple of years. She could reunite with her husband in the outside world. Hare had no reason to believe that Marie would jeopardize all of that. So between 1984 and 1987, Marie got to go on four more eight-hour leaves. But the furloughs weren't enough. Marie wanted her freedom now. So when an opportunity to escape came along, she didn't hesitate. On February 19, 1987, 53-year-old Marie was given permission to leave for three whole days. She'd be released into the care of her husband, 40-year-old John. All she had to do was agree to return on Sunday. The first day out, Marie and John checked into a motel in Anniston, and they made the most of their time together. But by Sunday morning, Marie was ready to make her move. She was due back at the prison that afternoon, and she really didn't want to go. So she told John she wanted to visit her parents' graves. It would mean the world to her if she could do it on her own. John hesitated at first, but eventually agreed. Marie smiled and gave him a kiss. She left the hotel around 9 a.m., promising she'd see him at the local Waffle House in an hour. Then she ran away, because... Of course she did. Meanwhile, John got himself ready and headed down to the restaurant. But 10 a.m. passed and nothing. He sat there for an hour, hoping that Marie still might show up. When she didn't, he reluctantly called the sheriff. She'd done it again. Marie had disappeared. Unfortunately for Marie, the elements were against her. It was pouring rain and nearly freezing temperatures. She needed to find somewhere safe and dry, but she didn't know who to turn to. She had no car, no money, and no real plan. Now, we don't know exactly what happened to Marie at this point, but we do know how hypothermia works, which is what came next. First, Marie's body would have tried to compensate for the cold. Then, as she stayed outside overnight, the blood vessels in her limbs shut down. She likely fell to her knees, unable to stand, and started to crawl instead. Eventually, her body temperature fell below 94 degrees. At that point, blood wasn't properly flowing to her brain, which would have made her confused and irrational. After three grueling days in the woods, Marie found herself on a local woman's porch. She banged on the door and called for help. When no one answered, she grasped at the handle, trying desperately to get inside. A neighbor noticed her there and called the police. By the time the cops arrived, Marie had passed out on the porch. They rushed her to the hospital, where doctors tried to revive Marie, but it was too late. She was dead. Marie's death was anticlimactic and a little confusing. Authorities were perplexed as to why Marie stayed in Anniston long enough for the brutal weather to get to her. She was a great escape artist. Surely she could have figured out a way to leave town quickly. But for whatever reason, she didn't. 
It's possible she tried and failed, or perhaps she had second thoughts about leaving John again, or maybe Marie Hilly was just tired of running. Like so much of Marie's life, it would remain a mystery. All we know is that she was a woman who refused to be tied down, even when the alternative was death. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Audrey Marie Hilly, amongst the many sources we used, we found Poisoned Blood by Philip E. Ginsburg, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast once upon a time and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify. Spotify.